0: So President Trump making good on another campaign promise, just announcing some efforts to bring down U.S. drug prices, speaking from the White House. Let's bring in, though, our Brian Rye, senior health care policy analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence from our Washington, D.C. Bureau, along with uh, on the phone from Charlotte, North Carolina, Susan Devore. She is CEO at Premier. They're a healthcare technology company. They work with hospitals and healthcare providers. Both of them joining myself and Bob Ivery of uh, Bloomberg News in our New York studio. Hey, Brian. Let's kick it off. Um, as Bob said earlier, maybe no surprises because it was pretty well telegraphed what we were going to get from the president. What though did stand out for you?
1: Well, I think a couple of things. First, the timing of this is such that they always have uh, the upcoming midterms in mind, and this is an effort by President Trump and the Republicans to try and demonstrate to voters uh, that they want they're serious about drug pricing. Now, the actual details uh, tend to be a bit more um, problematic than they want to suggest, but again, this is an area healthcare in general where Democrats want to hit uh, Republicans, so they're trying to get out in front of that before the next uh, opportunity to uh, to have the control of Congress up for grabs. I think the the number one issue they want to get at here is the out-of-pocket costs uh, for patients. And so pressure uh, to see more rebates available to patients at the point of sale, uh, trying to maybe get more transparency into the system uh, by, I think you heard Secretary Azar saying, we'll explore uh, having companies, you know, have to disclose their prices in their commercials or updating the the dashboard, which being like a lot of government entities is is woefully out of date. If you went to the CMS drug pricing dashboard right now, you would see prices uh, available from 2015 15. They haven't been updated since then. So mm. more more transparency into the system. Uh, but certainly, to your point, this did not contain any of the things that certainly a, a Bernie Sanders or a Hillary Clinton had proposed, you know, giving the federal government more ability to negotiate or, frankly, dictate uh, what those prices might be for Medicare drugs or having a new office with a drug pricing enforcer, I believe the Democrats called it. None of those things are in here.
2: Susan, uh, thanks for joining us. Was there anything that uh, Brian didn't mention that was uh, interesting to you and what the president and the secretary. Said.
3: Yeah, I think you know because we work with a big footprint of providers at Premier. I think our providers listening to the speech would have been encouraged by a couple of things. One is they want to use a market competition private private sector approach to this. Um, they want to start to deal with some of the games being played that extend the life of uh, of drugs and, and the high uh, prices. They want to get after transparency. This question of the um, the consumer and the consumer receiving more of, of, of that back end, you know, just have to be careful that that doesn't somehow rob Peter to pay Paul and cause higher insurance premiums on the front end. But all in all, I think providers would say 99% of them would say drug pricing is a huge challenge in their healthcare systems and speeding up the FDA, getting biosimilars to market having more transparency, disclosing drug pricing, moving to these value-based payment models are all many of the right ways to align the incentives more appropriately.
0: So I remember when Hillary Clinton was trying to make sense out of health care and she put out this plan. And here we are, how many decades later, already, you know, still talking about health care and drug pricing. Um, Susan, what's the likelihood, though, that something actually can get done? You know, I think that
3: um, Alex Azar and and HHS has a view of implementing regulatory changes that remove some of the barriers, moving the whole healthcare provider system to incentives that are not perverse, um, that really start to align providers for owning the total cost of, of a patient population. Um, which will cause them to think about um, alternatives, biosimilars, generics, drug pricing, procedures, differently. And so I think the question is, how do you really get the private sector employers and payers and health systems engaged in changing the way they're delivering care?
2: Brian, that's uh, Susan brings up a really good point. How do you do something like that without going down the path towards price controls?
1: Well, you know, to, to your earlier point, you know, if, it, if this were a simple problem, it would have been fixed, um, you know, decades ago. I think the, the onus is on uh, not only the, the administration here, but also on the participating companies. If you don't want uh, price controls to eventually come down the pike, then I think some something has to be done. Now, what something uh, ultimately is remains to be seen. But again, if they can somehow, you know, speed up the, these, these approvals, and they've right. already started to do that. I think Scott Gottlieb and the FDA have actually been very effective at getting through the what had been a pretty big backlog of generic applications and, and you know, they want to continue to go down that path, but then get at some of the patent evergreening and other strategies that some of the brand name companies are using to keep those generics off the market.
0: All right. Well, just the beginning, but it seems like uh, certainly a significant step, uh, maybe from the White House here. Hey, Brian. Thank you so much, Brian Rye, senior health care policy analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence from our Washington D.C. bureau, and Susan, Susan Devore, excuse me, chief executive officer at Premier, joining us on the phone from Charlotte, North Carolina. Well,
2: The next thing we're going to talk about is kind of weird. And uh, no surprise, it's about California. We have this billionaire cryptocurrency guy named Tim Draper, and he has this zany plan to cut the state into three smaller states. And we have with us Polina Noskova of Bloomberg News to tell us all the details. Polly, why does he want to do this?
4: So Tim Draper sees a lot of problems with California, Um, the three main ones being education, infrastructure, and a lack of safety. And he thinks the best way to address those is by breaking California up into three states that could compete against each other, like startups for business and people. So, okay,
0: does this make sense?
4: So a lot of people actually think it makes sense. He submitted over 600,000 signatures to get the initiative on the ballot in November for California to vote on whether or not um, this should be enacted.
2: Well, let's let's tell people what the map looks like a little bit. So we have L.A. basically, and the and the Southern California coast. Then we have this kind of line that's going northwest, uh, just south of the Bay Area and north to the Oregon border. And then basically the Central Valley and the High Desert in in Southern California as the three uh, the three new states, and they'd be called Northern California, Southern California, and of course L.A. would just be. California. California. <laughs> yeah, so, funny how that works out. And and he's done it. He's done it. Um, kind of equal population. Um, what, what would? But what would be the differences? What, what's what's the? I'm, I'm really curious into why, you know, he's he's broken it up like this. California's got a 4.3 percent jobless rate. It's you know. They're not doing that badly out there. It's almost like he made his money at it with cannabis instead of crypto, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> but it's interesting.
4: Yeah, so the uh, the state borders were decided based on population, but also industry. In Northern California, uh, the top industries would be agriculture, high-tech manufacturing, trade and tourism, and forestry. Um, for Southern California, it would be agriculture, manufacturing, and financial services. And for California, it would be manufacturing, motion pictures, tourism, and forestry. Um, and so
0: is it a case of kind of sharing the wealth a little bit more? I just came from San Francisco. Uh, we were talking about the real estate there and they just talk about, you know, there are people who obviously made a lot of money, right? The real estate is like off the charts in terms of valuations and, and growth in prices or rises in prices, but there are a lot of people who can't find homes. They can't afford them. So you have these, like we've seen in other parts of the country, you know, this great difference disparity between the haves and have nots. Is this a way of kind of sharing the wealth because you kind of have these three states in california competing for one another
4: yeah and Draper's actually had some experience of that he had a proposal a couple years ago to divide california into six states and that got some flack because it would have created both the richest and the poorest state in the united states so this time he's trying to spread the wealth around a little bit
2: but the uh, you, you said that they had enough signatures to get it on the ballot what's 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 the what's the likelihood of success of this
4: so right now the signatures are in review. The um, county election officials have to make sure that all the signatures are valid in order for it to be on the ballot. And we'll know that by June 13th.
0: What's What's interesting, though, Bob, is the rest of this story kind of looks into, OK, here's what's going against him, which I love it. right? You let, let Draper make his case. And then you say, OK, the last time this happened was during the Civil War. We talk about <laughs> go
4: through it, right? You West make Virginia. Five, five good points about maybe why why it won't work. Sure. So even if the initiative's on the ballot and if Californians decide to have three Californians instead of one... it might be really difficult to get this enacted because there's no clear legal guideline for how to split a state into three. When West Virginia split off from Virginia, it was during the Civil War and West Virginia had to get um, added back to the Union. So politically, times are a little bit different um, as well as constitutionally. Uh, plus, it would could be, be a little tricky. Yeah, it would be really hard for California to get support uh, on this on a national level because it would create at least two solidly blue states. So it's hard to see any Republicans voting for it.
2: Yeah, I could see the Republicans just saying no. You um, <laughs> think so, right? The but there but there is uh you know California's not the only state in the Union that that has been murmuring about getting out of the United States entirely. Mm-hmm. Uh Sarah Palin's husband was in a group that wanted Alaska out and Texas has been talking about seceding for since 1840. Forever. So <laughs> forever, right? So um uh the it, it but, but so there are differences, right, with with within California and f- California from the United States. Is there any way that, um, even as an idea, I know politically it's very difficult. But you know, if California really wants to do this, they probably will end up doing it. Do you think that Californians want to do it?
4: So Draper's point is really hitting home with a group of Californians who feel like they're an unheard political minority. On a state and national level, California is so solidly blue that um, a lot of times, if you look at this map that I have here, a lot of these more red areas, are um, their votes are just not going to be heard at a state level. Um,
2: They're rural areas. They're (laughs) not, not very populated.
4: Yeah, a lot of those areas are more rural and a lot of them are in Northern California, which actually has its own initiative right now to split off from the rest of California, join Southern Oregon and form the state of Jefferson. <laughs> it's just interesting,
0: right, with all this division that we see or some division that we see around the country. It's just people thinking, OK, maybe there's a different way to, to do it. Maybe it could be better. Maybe it's just a great topic for conversation. I just want
2: to be the guy that names the new states.
0: <laughs> California A, California B, California Jefferson. <laughs> Polly, Thank you so much. Thanks, Polly. Paulina Neskova, reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg 1130 studio.
2: Bloomberg Radio is welcoming in new billionaires. I mean, we don't have them here in the studio, but we are welcoming to them to the world. Maybe they you are do, the, and you just don't
0: know about well, it. Well, Carol, <laughs> we'll
2: have to look at your tax re- <laughs> returns. Not happening. Uh, they are the founders of Robinhood and uh, Robinhood Markets, Inc., to be exact. And we have Bloomberg reporter Julie Verhaege here to tell us about them. Who are the new billionaires, and why are they newly minted billionaires.
5: Right. I wish we had new billionaires every day so we could play that intro song. That <laughs> was song, amazing. Right? <laughs> uh, so Baiju and Vlad are the two co-founders of this company. They are in their early 30s. And given the new funding round that they just recently closed, we looked at documents, did some math. We used a company called Equity Zen, which specializes in analyzing data like this. And given how much they own of the company, they are indeed billionaires on paper at this point. Of course, this is based on everything working out, valuations not going going ...going down afterwards, but as things stand now, as long as things keep going well as they seem to be so far... They are billionaires. They've done very well for themselves.
2: And why are Beiju Bot and Vlad Tenev? Did I say that right? You did. Uh, why are they billionaires? How do they get all this funding?
5: Right. So this is a startup that they uh, – the first trade was done in it four years ago. It's a trading platform. You know, typically people would go to a place like E-Trade and after brokers, and you would pay a commission anywhere from like $5, $10, et cetera. And they have done this for free. They've been making money other ways, ways that brokers also make money, sort of like selling order flow, um, interest on the money that customers hold in their accounts, other ways like that to make it so they have never charged commissions on any of the products on their platform.
2: So I can trade stocks for nothing?
5: Yes, it is zero. Like, I have one share of Nike on there. I did not pay anything in trading fees for that share of Nike.
0: How do they making money? because we've had these guys on and I can't remember is it the, do they have a tiered though like can you yeah, up, so there's also Robin and then you gold. start paying right
5: Right so based on how much you want to trade on margin meaning like you mm-hmm. don't actually have $10,000 but you want to add to that by just sort of like borrowing the money there are different levels of like subscription fees So you can pay $20 a month $40 a month whatever it may be Vers of Uh, how much you actually want to have in the margin, that is a a great portion of how they make their money. When they did their last round, they said that it was roughly 50% of people on there that were trading, I believe uh actually were Robinhood Gold customers. They did not I didn't ask, but they also didn't update that in the latest round. I would be curious to see how many of the now 4 million users that they have on their platform that are tra- the not all of them are trading, but of those that are trading, what percent are actually, you know, paying that margin fee because right. that makes a big difference. Exactly.
2: And their valuation's gone from 1.3 billion to 6 billion this time around. It's um, a big
5: jump. That's in, within 1 it's, year
2: kind of crazy. Um, I'm already looking into my crystal ball and seeing the <laughs> IPO and them making a gob of money. But yet, how long is it going to take me? Maybe nobody knows. But how long do you think it'll take for this company to make money?
5: I mean, they have very big ambitions. I wouldn't be surprised. I know they're launching other products this year. I just don't know what they are. I wouldn't be surprised to see some sort of, you know, financial savings tool, a bank account, a credit card, other things. Their motto is anything that consumers are getting charged for a lot right now, and there's this sort of arbitrage arbitrage trade in there for them to lower that and still make a little bit of money on it, they're going to go after that market.
0: They, and they've also got into cryptocurrencies as well, correct?
5: Yes. So they don't charge like a, a commission on that as well. That's also free. But there is some ways to make money on the back end of that, too.
0: Hey, I got to ask you, is this another one of the robo-advisors that are out there? Or is their, their tack a little bit different, Julie?
5: They're a little bit different, but the robo-advisors are scared of them as well. Because if someone like Robinhood that has 4 million users decided to open up uh, you know, an investment account like a, a robo advisor does, there'd be a lot of customers that would use it. They've had very good adoption from those early people that were just trading stocks on the mobile app. They've done options trading, crypto, as you mentioned, other products. Yeah. So the fact that consumers are very apt to just, you know what, I love my experience with this company so far. Why don't I just open up another thing with them? That is what scares other companies out there.
0: And I think what's kind of telling about this story, and I like how you started up, you say it took decades for Wall Street Titans, mm-hmm. Jamie Dimon, and Lloyd Blankfein to become billionaires, and these guys did it in a Silicon Valley Minute. Mm-hmm. You know, it is really impressive to see these folks who have started new platforms are getting a lot of users in the financial or fintech world um, very, very quickly. They're ramping up. Mm-hmm. But isn't
2: it just, is, isn't their talent more in selling and PR than it is in maybe doing something that's revolutionary that's also going to make money?
5: I will be one of the first to say they have done a phenomenal job in terms of PR and marketing. But I do think there's a lot of very smart people out there. They have phenomenal designers. The app is extremely easy to use and intuitive for the user base. Uh, so as long as they keep doing things right and the products that they launch are are adopted and liked as much as the ones that they have so far, I think they can keep going. That is just a big if, though, but investors are obviously betting that that will happen.
0: What do we know about their typical uh, investor that's on the platform? Because they launched it, I think, on Apple or at the App Store, right? Yeah. I think initially. I'm just curious. Is it typically a younger individual? Right. One
5: of the things they actually launched this year was trading on the website. When they came to me and like, oh, we're launching trading on our website, I was like, wait, you don't actually have that already? It's been (laughs) massive mobile adoption. I mean, like, They went straight to mobile. Yeah, it was just mobile at first. And for the first, it'd be yeah. like three years then, people could only trade on their mobile phone. So they also benefited just from this rise of everyone just doing stuff on the thing that they hold in their pocket or purse, right? It's pretty amazing, right? Yeah, it's amazing. And the other thing you have to keep in mind is they have more user- brokerage accounts than E-Trade has at this point. And Wait, E-Trade, say that again. They have more brokerage accounts than E Trade right now. Wow. Okay, and if you look at if the, they
2: charged money for them,
5: I know exactly. <laughs> even if it's just ninety nine cents, but the thing is, right. they'll never actually do that. Like I was pretty adamant. Like, would you ever charge even a tiny fee for this? And they're
0: like, No, E Trade never going to do Seventeen billion dollar market cap. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
5: exactly. Yeah. And it, well, the other hmm. thing is, like, E Trade, the growth has pretty much stalled at this point. When I went back and looked at just to see the brokerage account growth. It's really, there's not
0: much there. And the stock's up 30% this year. So maybe that's why
5: investors were like, you know what, maybe we can give this a $6 billion valuation. One of the other interesting things is the guy that led, it was either the seed or the Series A round, was also an early investor in E-Trade. So he saw a similar thing like, hey, mobile's going to be a really big thing. I think this is a chance to sort of, Mm -hmm. you know, technology has gotten a lot better over the years. We can offer trading for a very small fee why not take a better and on there this? was
2: some idealism in there too mm-hmm. right it was they they wanted to uh to do with their share against the income inequality
5: right right and they have saved users more than a billion dollars in fees at this point so i mean they have done a lot
0: yeah it's impressive and you're right mm-hmm. those guys have been out there talking and Ashton Kutcher and Snoop Dogg were involved, exactly. so I mean, come
2: if on. Bob. Snoop Dogg's in on it, I want to get on, <laughs> in on it too. At
5: their at their old office, they had a say. There was like a Snoop Dogg room, and the the saying, in it was buy low, stay high.
2: <laughs> of so, course, I, it said that. Oh, I like exactly. it
5: exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, did
2: he trademark that?
5: He should. If he <laughs> hasn't, right? <laughs> if he hasn't yet, let's go do that after this show. Okay.
3: Yeah, right. <laughs> we're on it. Julie,
0: Julie. <laughs> Julie Berge, fintech reporter at News, in Julie. our
6: <laughs> New York studio. is the drive to the close. That punk to music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio.
2: Our next guest, who's going to drive us home, is Ernesto Ramos. He is a portfolio manager for BMO, Global Asset Management in Chicago, with assets under management of $252 billion. Ernesto, uh, sum up the week for us.
6: Well, it's been, uh, back to the, uh, the rally here this week. Uh, concerns, uh, seem to be receding on uh, trade protectionism policies. And I think that's, uh, largely what's uh, been driving these markets higher in, in the, in, the, in the, these last few days. Hey,
0: so listen, it's interesting. Um, You guys, you run a a large cap value fund, also a large cap growth fund. You've been beating most of your peers over the past five years, just looking at uh, returns there. Um, In this market environment, lots of volatility. Traders like it, right? There's more opportunities to buy and sell at this point. Um, Are you finding new opportunities, maybe a name that you like, especially in the value space, um, that all of a sudden now looks attractive?
6: Well, there's a lot of names uh, that look attractive in the value space uh, given the differential in in prices that you have to pay over growth stock, uh, under growth stocks. Uh, Historically speaking, we're seeing growth uh, stocks trading at one of the highest spreads over value stocks about five point five dollars per earnings more than value stocks and that's as high as we've seen it in the last 12 years so for example we're we're able to buy companies like uh, uri united rentals which are doing fantastic just reported a couple of weeks ago fantastic results and they're only turning at 10 times earnings uh and another one of our, our 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 Top holdings in the value funders, Bank of America, which of course is trading very, very cheaply around also ten times earnings, and they're in a very good spot given the uh, improving economy, accelerating economic growth, as well as uh, rising rates. So, um, so we, we there's plenty of opportunities and, and great stocks to buy in the value space. Not to say there's not great companies in the growth space, but you have to pay up uh, for mm. those quite a bit.
2: If we can zero in on energy stocks for just a second, Ernesto, you are recommending ConocoPhillips. Why is that a better bet than some of the the other energy stocks right now?
6: Well, ConocoPhillips is an exploration and production company, EMP company, as we call it, in this space. And as the price of of oil rises... They are more directly benefiting from that than the more integrated uh, oil uh, oil companies. So they are directly on the price of oil, but at the same time, they have been very disciplined in uh, cutting costs and only focusing on those projects that they have a good return on equity projection for, as opposed to just uh, spending money more widely on exploration. So uh, the discipline on the cost side, the discipline on focusing on only projects that They deem to be very profitable, plus rising oil prices uh, are going to be very good for for this company in the next uh, year or two.
2: Can you look into your crystal ball for us and tell us what you think is going to happen with uh, pharmaceutical stocks and health stocks, uh, seeing as how the president and the secretary of health have just unveiled a a new plan to uh, bring drug prices down?
6: To be perfectly honest with you, I haven't seen the details of the plan, uh, but just from a very long-term perspective, pharmaceutical stocks and healthcare stocks in general are a great place to be in our country. Uh, there's so many of them in the in the value space as well. Um, unfortunately, like I said, I have not seen the details of that plan Uh, So I can't really comment on on that.
0: Fair enough. But you do hone Pfizer, right? And and is it just a case of it's the demographic play, um, Ernesto, that you find interesting and that more people getting old, more people need more
6: drugs? Yeah, that's the big picture argument for those. But I do have to say we have uh, our investment approach focuses on fundamentals. Meaning growth and quality and making sure we 're not overpaying for that, so we have a very comprehensive approach to ranking stocks and measuring their fundamentals in terms of about eight or nine different metrics, valuing the stock in about eight or nine different ways, and then picking the best combination of strong valuation strong fundamentals and uh, and under Appreciated or undervalued uh, stocks. So, so it really doesn't have to do with these long-term demographic trends. That's something that that all stocks in the space will benefit from w- within each of the sectors we're focusing on, picking the the fastest and strongest growers, also and also trading at the cheapest valuation within their particular sectors.
0: All right, we're going to leave it on that note, Ernesto. Thank you so much, Ernesto Ramos, portfolio manager of BMO Global Asset Management, 252. Billion dollars in assets under management on the phone from Chicago. He's also portfolio manager at BMO Global Asset. uh, The forgive me, the BMO Large Cap Value Fund and the BMO Large Cap Growth Fund. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at two p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio.